tuned in to Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Good evening, everybody. The Weekend Variety Wireless, the Saturday edition. A quick heads up for tomorrow night. I may as well, because I'm here. Uh, there is another Weekend Variety Wireless edition of a Sunday evening, 8 till midnight. Um, a book on addiction, and it does shatter some myths. I entreat you to have a listen. The author is Matt Knopfs, and uh, he's been part of a drug rehab program uh, or intervention program treatment in Sydney for a long time. And it's a fascinating read. We'll have a copy to give away as well. Don't miss it. That'll be 10.30 tomorrow evening. Album from the class of 1978 tonight after 11 o'clock, Patti Smith's Easter. And uh, some interesting things about Patti Smith in her earlier years. Do be listening. It may shatter a few myths or presumptions as well uh, between 11 o'clock and 12 tonight. Uh, we salute an old blue award winner. That is the Apex Award Forest and Bird give out. They are not given out lightly, usually for a lifetime's work, but quite a young man by the name of Graham Lowe is one of the recipients. We visited him, when I say we, I mean I did, and then put it on the radio, and the Catlins with his amazing work with the Yellowhead and Mohua. Beautiful bird. We'll replay that for Enviro News, as well as having a chat to him by way of a round of applause. Science this hour. Astronomy with Grant Christie coming up. Go to the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. We have complimentary um, photographs and links that Grant will be talking about. Next up, though, we need a marine biologist for Science Report. Is the one in the house? Yes. Rochelle Constantine. Science Report up next. Good evening. The Weekend Variety Wireless. This week, marine biology with marine biologist Rochelle Constantine. Uh, last time we heard from you, you just returned from Antarctica. And today, I think a really fascinating subject, and it's temperature and animal life. Because I often wonder how the hell do they do it? And there are those mystery things like frogs that get frozen and then they thaw out and stuff like that. Yeah, there's amazing adaptations by all kinds of animals to, to survive, you know, temperature change. I guess this is an interesting topic because, you know, we're all putting on our woolly hats and jackets mm. and what have you. But, you know, animals can't do that apart yeah. from us. And so, you know, they, they've got to either adapt uh, to these conditions or prepare ahead or they have, you know, some amazing physiological adaptations that allow them to do it. Yeah. Um, our natural, uh, the human natural... Um, thermal tolerance it, it it's known we've got a we exist between those temperatures sort of things yeah so you know humans it's give or take you know eight nine degrees up to sort of late 20 degrees so 28 29 degrees and that's where we're actually 
at our most thermally comfortable. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, we start to either, you know, suck in a lot more oxygen or we change our behaviour patterns or, you know, things that we do. Of course, people who live in really cold or really warm climates adapt to those temperatures. But we do have a, a thermal minimum and maximum where we will we'll die of either hypothermia or hyperthermia, being too cold or too hot, because simply our, you know, our body can't cope. And most every single organism in the world, mm. plant, animal, you know, otherwise, has a thermal tolerance range and what we find is those animals that live in the in sort of polar regions or or um, sort of, you know, around the tropical regions have a much more limited thermal tolerance whereas those that are temperate sort of like New Zealand mm. broadly speaking um, have have much greater thermal tolerance the exact processes behind that are uncertain but you know generally speaking um, you know those animals and or organisms that live in the temperate areas have um, seasons. You know, mm -hmm. So we get cooler and we get warmer and we have that sort of slight transition in between those things. So that's probably why they've adapted to live in those sort of habitats. Right, and if you're living in the cold areas or the hot areas, it's you've got a smaller range that you can cope with. Yeah. So what do you think when you see a polar bear in a zoo? <laughs> for lots of reasons not happy. No, no. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, you know, if you think about natural uh, dispersal of, of organisms and that, you, you know, they can only go so far. So for those animals that can easily sort of get up and fly or swim or run somewhere else, they can do that. But they'll reach a point where they can't, actually function anymore unless they do it very very slowly and move really slowly and I think some of the things we've been thinking a lot about are northern hemisphere is a really good example so a lot of the, the the seasonal migrations of birds they're arriving earlier and earlier you know so they, they used to be away for the long cold winter mm. well, the long cold winter winter isn't that long and isn't that cold now and particularly in those extreme northern regions so birds are arriving earlier mammals are moving earlier there's a whole a bunch of different animals that are moving and we're seeing it even in the ocean so for example off um off the sort of broader speaking nova scotia st lawrence area the large whales are now there a month earlier than they were about 30 years ago so they're arriving on the feeding grounds earlier because their prey is there earlier um and you know and that's as a result of the water warming so it's not just a, a land thing it's an ocean thing so we're kind of getting these really interesting changes and in movements by organisms because they're slowly adapting and it's not just linear it's not like every year they creep a little closer yeah. you know they're sort of warmer and cooler and warmer and cooler it's on average over time yeah that's right and that's you know, i think that's a really tough thing for people to get their heads around you know with the, some of these changes it's snowing in las vegas ha ha where's your climate change yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and climate change is as much about cold as it is about warm. Mm. And that's, you know, it's more of that extreme and the fluctuations are getting more pronounced. You know, they used to be sort of reasonably smooth, but now they're pronounced. So how do animals actually, you know, adapt mm. to those changes? I actually like thinking of climate change or what's termed global warming mm. as it's just more energy in the system. We know there's more energy in the system you're going to get stuff. It might be colder. It might be hotter. Storms will be more frequent, bigger, rain harder. And you know, it's just more energy. Yeah, that's right. And that energy is, you know, bursting out in different ways in different places. Yeah. You know, and so in New Zealand, I think, you know, it's kind of interesting because we are already seeing some quite 
big differences in some areas, you know, the sort of frequencies of storms, you know, more extreme tides, you know, those little things that are, are going on. And now they're sort of, you know, waking people up. And, you know, I think about even with fish and that. So, um, uh, you know, a colleague of mine, Irene Middleton, is studying uh, unusual things you might see in the ocean. And she's got this great web page, which I should send you the link to, sorry, I can't remember it. But <laughs> nonetheless, she's got this this, you know, this page now that you can go to and log if you see something unusual in the sea. And there's all kinds of random, you know, Australian species and tropical species that are turning up, especially this year with the warm blob. Right. And you talk to the folks down south, you know, right down Southland area, and they're seeing kingfish and um, snapper and fish that, you know, are never down there historically. Suddenly they're all down there and it's really turning some of the food chain on its head. So, you know, we know down south that the water is, you know, warmer by about not quite two degrees, give or take over That's 50 a lot. years. It's a lot. You know, it's sort of, it, it fluctuates between about one and two-ish. Um, and that's a lot, you know, over time. But what that means is the potential for animals to move and then stay there because the thermal gradient's good. But I was talking to a colleague of mine, Brendan Dumphy, who works at university with University of Auckland with me, and and I was asking him about um, shellfish, for example, and he said, well, one of the really big things we don't talk about with, as you say, global warming is actually we still really need the cold. And the cold is a really important, those cold snaps are still really critical for many plants and animals because they create what we call a diapause. So their normal life is chucking along and they're breeding and mating and whatever else they might be doing. But then this really cold snap comes and they stop and they, they concentrate all their energy in and instead of producing eggs, which for example, um, marine invertebrates do so, oysters, mussels, you know, those kinds of things. Mm. Instead, they just stop and they go, gosh, it's cold. I'm now going to put no energy into producing, um, you know, spawn, eggs, sperm, whatever. Uh, and instead, I'm going to actually sit still and I'm going to put all my energy into getting nice and fat and creating big fat gonads that have got, you know, lots so that when it warms up again, bam, you know, spawning season is on. And those spawning seasons, is particular for, for marine invertebrates, are really critical that time of year when right now is when all the, you know, eggs and sperm are in the system. And so... Um, that cold snap is really critical. And he said what they're finding um, with the bluff oysters is that they're actually just sort of producing, you know, um, um, eggs kind of year-round almost. And that's quite dangerous because if you just produce a few eggs at a go, they're likely to get eaten. If you produce five billion in a go, right. a few of them will make it. Right. So there's some quite important things around cold that we're not paying attention to, which I hadn't really thought much about. And what are these heat shock proteins that some animals can produce to cope? So um, pretty much all, all animals have heat shock proteins. So there are... Um, uh, in the cell, there's the mitochondria, which power the cell and power everything that goes on. And then there's a whole bunch of protein functions that go on in the cell that make the cell be able to cope with different situations of all kinds. Now, the heat shock proteins in particular, as their name implies, are around dealing with temperature shifts and changes. So there are those that are always there, deal with the slow everyday temperature changes. But we know that there are some uh, organisms uh, best example, a rock pool organism. So it's a sunny day in Auckland. A rock pool can get to 40 plus degrees Celsius. The tide comes in, 
and bam, the water's 23 degrees. So those organisms in that rock pool have dropped like just instantly 20 degrees Celsius. And what we know is a lot of you know, little triple fin fishes and even a lot of the little uh, invertebrates that live in rock pools, they have um, uh, these heat shock proteins that allow them to cope with those dramatic and sudden changes in temperature so that their body doesn't go into shock. So if you, know, if you took an average human and then just boom, mm. you know, drop their temperature by 20 degrees, we would be in quite a bad way. We might not die straight away, mm. but you know, if it's a big enough thing or if, you know, um, if you've not got a really good thermal tolerance, it's, we're going to you know, not tolerate that at all. And that's because we don't have these good uh, heat shock proteins that cope with sudden change in temperature. And so we find that in some animals they have really high levels of them that can allow them physiologically to you know, cope with this dramatic change. Mm. And in other organisms like us, we don't have, we're not as good, you know, uh, our heat shock protein sources aren't as good. But Swedes love a sauna and then they jump into the water, the stupid people. <laughs> they do, they do. But if you're not feeling that flash or you're, you know, mm. not used to that, you know, you will get a, a more than mildly elevated heart rate, you know, and it's yeah. it's actually kind of a dangerous thing to do. Yeah. Yeah, so... so I, I've had that experience. You probably have as well. Uh, yeah. And it was just um, a, a glacial river that looked so lovely, just so beautiful yeah. in South Island. Yeah. I think it was called Stony Creek, one of many. <laughs> um, and I thought, oh, this is just going to be so beautiful. I jumped in and it was like my spinal cord took over. My arms and legs were flapping, say, get out, get out, get out. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You go into full panic mode. And, you you, you know, the, the human body is quite an interesting thing, how it will respond to that sudden stress. But that was your you know, physiological, that fight or flight thing mm. because your body got such a shock. That's what it did. So there are organisms that can cope with those real sudden changes and organisms that can't we're one that can't <laughs> hadn't really thought about that with rock pools because yeah they get really hot and stagnant and then then suddenly everything's very very different yeah that's right so this we're learning quite a lot around those thermal tolerances and there's of course a lot of really cool research on all kinds of animals that live at extremes you know, I mean, I think I, I mentioned to you uh, about the, um, the the little storm petrels down in Antarctica. I mean, these are a tiny little bird. You know, they're, they're smaller than the palm of your hand, and and yet they're flitting around, and it's it's you know minus 50 degrees Celsius, and they're just bouncing around on top of the sea, on top of the ice, and it's like, wow, how do you actually survive this? absolute freezing cold weather we you know we can't go outside for very long no. but these tiny little birds do that and you know extreme mountain small organisms really uh, fascinating uh, but the, those flocks of emperor penguins overwintering in yeah. Antarctica, that's yeah. that's wrong, isn't it? It's, it's, it's just preposterous. But yeah. but yeah. they found a way to do it, yeah. and you know, and for them, they actually do it by being a social bird. Mm. You know, and part of the way they can do it is by huddling and staying warm. How good must those feathers be? Yeah. Oh yeah, and preened within an inch of their life yeah. <laughs> to keep the, yeah. the the nice warm air in them. If in doubt, preened. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, um, and oh, just one other subject, and we are still with the bird. Birds, New Caledonian crows. New Zealanders very, very involved in the research with these animals and they do seem to be particularly 
peculiarly smart, don't they? Oh, they're magnificent. So it's been quite a while that we've known, you know, that, that the New Caledonia crows are, are great at tool use and, and finding exactly the right tool for the right job. Problem solving. Problem solving, exactly. And it was actually, you know, seen in the wild. Gavin Hunt, who, who's now at the University of Auckland, originally sort of looked at this. And uh, I remember way back during... Um, his postdoc days and he was sort of interested in that and then other groups from other places have also come on board and so the latest research um, by Ale- led by Alex Taylor uh, also in, at University of Auckland has shown that um, the next iteration I guess in how amazing these crows are. So we, we know these crows can go, they're in the wild, they go, they pick the right twig, they shape it with the right hook, they get it the right length and they don't use trial and error and they just get you know, I, this needs to be this long to pull that grub out of that tree or to get whatever they need. If it's wrong, they just discard it, make another one, and they know exactly what they need. So they then thought, well, how are they learning to do that? So they looked at the chicks learning from their mums. No, that's not happening. The chicks, they think, actually just play with discarded tools from adults and learn what tool is is useful. So that got the recent research looking at, well, how do they, you know, how do they actually know that that tool will will fit with that job and so this recent research what they did is they've um taken these crows they're, they're wild crows and they put them in these aviaries for a while and they do these you know tests on them and what they did is they gave them a skinny piece of paper and a wider piece of paper and a kind of vending machine thing and if they put the right size paper in the vending machine they got a treat right mm. so then after that you know the crows for god's are, sake don't give them your pin number <laughs> honestly i wouldn't that is so true god knows what they would do with the vending machine with your pin number but then um what they did is they then gave them a big piece of paper and the crows just ripped and tore and shaped the exact right piece of paper to put in the vending machine to get the treat it's amazing i mean they really are such clever birds and i i love this i mean i'm as you know, I'm not a huge fan of humans all the time because I think, you know, we, we seem to think that we're better than other uh, other animals, but these crows have just got it all over us. I love yeah, it. I love yeah. it. They yeah. are astounding. Yeah. Um, oh, I might play something to freak you all out. Uh, I think I've got it somewhere here. Um, Alex, the African grey parrot. Oh, yes. Yeah, he died. He died. Yeah, Yeah. last year. There's the spookiest thing, one of the spookiest things I've ever seen on television, Uh, the handler or whatever, the lab technician with Alex, you know, asking various questions, how many of these? Four. Four. And then the parrot just says, can I go back now? Oh. Oof, had enough. I've had enough. Right. Can <laughs> I done. go back? And I went, oh, that was the bit that made me go, you can forget about, wow, you can count, and you know what colour things are, but just to actually um, elucidate or um, express, express yeah. yeah, express that I'm tired and can I go back to my cage now? I know, it's, it's magnificent. There are, some, there are some amazing animals out there. We yeah. need to be nicer to them. All right. <laughs> yeah, good advice. I actually may quote Christopher Hitchens in his Ten Commandments. Um, we're part of the web of life. It behoves us to act accordingly. <laughs> nice. <laughs> All right. Uh, Rochelle Constantine, thank you very, very much. Next up, uh, Grant Christie and Astronomy News, a selfie taken by uh, the Curiosity Rover. Man, that's an amazing thing. It's quite smart too. But anyway, here's Alex the Parrot. Are you sitting down? Here's Cork. Look at this mess. Now this is a confounded number task. 
And what's important about it is there are all these different objects really mixed in all amongst one another. And I'm going to ask him about a subset of these items. And that will show again that he's understanding my question and understanding all the numbers. Okay, here, we'll spread them out a little bit. Okay. Here, do you want to look? I'm going to move things around a little. Can you look and tell me? How many green wool? How many green wool? Four. Good parrot. Good boy. Good boy. Do you want a nut? You want a nut? Yeah, you have to ask for them. And you can ask for corks. You asked for a cork before. Do you want a cork instead? Huh? Do you want a cork? Do you want a little piece of that? All right. That's a fair enough request for now. The Weekend Variety Wireless. Astronomy Today with Dr. Grant Christie. Gosh, the night sky is looking lovely. Or has... Well, yeah, it is looking lovely. It has been just awesome um, southern hemisphere, I suppose. Oh, I don't know. It might be in the north as well. But anyway, um, Grant, Jupiter... Venus being given permission to land every second day. Yeah, it's looking spectacular. Mars looking bright and, and Saturn looking like a fabulous yeah, thing. Yeah, it's, it's pretty good. Yeah, I mean, you'll see all the bright planets at once in the sky, just pretty close to that, you know. So you're seeing Venus uh, around sunset in the northeast, uh, northwest, uh, very bright and getting brighter mm. and getting further away from the sun, so higher in the sky each night. You can watch it slowly move. Really, really bright. Um, then you've got uh, Jupiter, which is very bright mm. as well. Um, Saturn, which is not quite so bright, but it's uh, also pretty spectacular in, uh, around the Sagittarius region, the, sort of the end of uh, the eastern end of Scorpius. And then further around you've got Mars, which is getting really bright. So that's sort of starting to, that's nearly as bright as, in fact, it's probably now brighter or as, or as bright as Jupiter anyway. So. Mm. And that doesn't, that only happens... Uh, How awesome it must look uh, from the Mackenzie Basin or, or somewhere yeah, like that. Yeah, well, at Tick the moment, uh, you know, the, we've had the full moon going right through. Oh, that's right. And yeah, when, that buggered it up. Yeah, and when Mars is at opposition on the 27th of July, mm. the moon will actually be full and close to Mars as well. Ah. And there's also a total eclipse. Oh, of what? Of the moon. Oh, that's handy. Except that it occurs at dawn, our time. So basically, oh. uh, on that total eclipse, we'll talk about it nearer the time, but okay. it's a, a quite a rare one. I've only seen one once before where you have the eclipse occurring as the moon is setting. So if you get up on a hill, you will can see the sun rising on one horizon and exactly 180 degrees further around on the horizon in the west, and uh, you'll see the setting... Uh, moon being eclipsed. Well, yes, except by your that it's back. very yes. That's right. You can almost sort of make little sort of shadows, shadow puppets, <laughs> puppets on the <laughs> because it it, sh it it really spectacularly will show you the geometry of what's happening there. You know, you're you're standing on the body that's causing the shadow, and the light source is on your eastern side, and yeah. the, the shadow's hitting the moon on the western side. It's or if it's lost art, shadow puppeting. So uh, I've only seen one of those once before from the top of One Tree Hill. So oh. that was uh, really neat to get up on a decent high hill and see that. We have a few links re uh, relating to the subjects we're talking about today for uh, astronomy. Curiosity rover, it's taken a selfie on Mars. It's Because they've been there for so long, it's easy 
to forget every now and again that they're up there just yeah, hanging around right, doing stuff. Been there, right, a couple of thousand days, yeah. so, solid Martian days so far, and uh, still going strong. I always like these selfies. They, uh, of course, it's got some special arm with a camera on it, which they then edit out of the picture, which oh. <laughs> sort of had me guessing for a while as to how oh. they actually did it. But I, <laughs> I, that's that's the trick. It's a little bit of editing. Post, Is that what they told you? Post processing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's uh, yeah. So it really shows the landscape and how rocky it is where it is at the present time. And of course, it's now facing the threat of the this dust storm and it is affecting uh, where Curiosity is. And of course, as we speak now, Opportunity still hunkered down under a very heavy uh, dust storm on another part of Mars. Mm. And so in Endeavour Crater, I think. Yeah, and also the thing about mapping the galaxy, Gaia, we've talked about that before, the huge release, the mother load of all the data, billions of stars rather than just a million or two, yeah, this um, came out to where, not long ago. Yeah, yeah, well, this, this was released uh, uh, back in April, I think it was, mm -hmm. the final, uh, 25th of April, I think, close to uh, Anzac Day. But the... Uh, yeah, so this satellite is really put up by ESA years ago and it's been systematically measuring fundamental properties like the position and the motions of 1.9 billion stars, which is something in the order of 1% of all the stars in the galaxy. So that's a huge survey and it's just even, and it's only in its second, this is only its second data release, there's about three or four more to go where that'll improve the accuracy again and again. But this video beautifully shows the audacious scope of this project. Mm. I mean, it's going to rewrite most of the books on astronomy uh, and give us really accurate distances to about 1.3 billion stars, whereas currently we have them to a few, you know, tens of thousands of stars. It's, a, it's a, you know, it's an enormous increase in knowledge, yeah. uh, and uh, it'll become uh, a resource for, you know, be used for many, many decades to come, if not a century. Uh, that video's up on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage, easily, uh, nicely explained. And also you'll see a picture of Ryugu. Uh, this is this asteroid that the Japanese are going to visit, and um, they're quite close to it now. You can see what it looks like. Uh, it looks like the knob off a 1930s gas stove. <laughs> yeah, there's been a few comments. I mean, nobody expected to see a sort of, a sort of basically a cube looking asteroid uh, so that's going to be one for the theorists to sort of figure out uh, at the moment that's just the shape it looks from the direction that picture was taken obviously the satellite's going to get into orbit around we'll see the whole 3d picture of it it might not look quite so regular once we see the the, the whole um, the whole form of it but uh, fascinating to see it's only sort of in the order of a kilometer across this is a small object you know size of Rangitoto Island or something you know put it in sort of oh, okay. earth terms I mean something like a kilometer um, you know it's, it's a pretty big rock but uh, it's still you know it's it's very small and its gravity is very weak so it's very delicate process to get the satellite to get up close enough to be caught by the tiny weak gravity field of the small object and get into all bit around it and then uh, I can't wait to see the release of these little landers that uh, oh. they're going to drop onto land on the surface and get samples bring them back so it's a sample return mission. Do you know if they're using the previously failed harpoon method? No they're actually going to I think they're landing on the surface they're getting stuff and then they're sort of going to pop them off you, you don't need much of a, a, a gas sh shot 
you know, to launch yourself off something that's as tiny as that. But so, you know, how do you stick on it? It's easy to bounce off. Well, you? that's right. You have to bring them down very, very gently to the surface. So uh, I, exactly, I haven't looked at all the technical stuff of exactly how they're going to land. Okay. We'll, we'll sort of no doubt be getting inundated with that shortly as uh, the mission gets on. But it's a fantastic idea. Um, and, um, you know, they've got great opportunities to bring back some crucial samples of this asteroid. It's one of these ones that is very carbon rich. It's the sort of material that the solar system was built from. This is material that didn't get reworked by much. It's sort of very primitive. It's kind of like what was here before the sun was here. Wow. So that, that sort of material. And so scientists are very keen to get hold of this, samples of this in a laboratory on Earth where you can take it apart atom by atom and really work out its history. And it's uh, because it's, it, this stuff would be, you know, it predates the formation of the solar system. And the harpooning method uh, scuppered a lot of protests by Greenpeace. <laughs> um, now, Oumuamua, that was this big, long shard thing. We've talked about it on many occasions. And it was the first spotted visitor from another solar system weird looking thing apparently this is a comet it doesn't look like a comet no it, it doesn't actually and then that was a big puzzle for astronomers is that uh, they expected the most likely things to be ejected from a solar system were comets we know our solar system ejected lots of trillions of comets probably and other stars would have done the same um, it's much harder to eject an asteroid um, so they, the expectation was the first thing we saw coming from another solar system would also be a comet. And then, of course, it sort of, you know, was a, a huge surprise. This object looked like a rocky, hard thing. And, mm. and the computer art or the artist's impressions that are published um, sort of play on that. Uh, of course, those are artist's impressions. All the astronomers see is a tiny little extremely faint spot of light and that the artists are then <laughs> given the sort of prep to say well you know draw up what this thing might look like yeah. well of course you know you haven't got a lot to go on so at the time they they couldn't see any outgassing from it so as it came closer to the sun it came closer to the, to the sun than mercury is mm -hmm. uh, so it would have got a bit you know pretty good warm-up and so if it had a lot of icy material in it as a comet would you'd expect to see it outgassing like a comet and none was seen now, it could have been outgassing atoms of and molecules like carbon dioxide and stuff like that rather than dust particles, in which case it wouldn't be... <coughs> bless you, sir. It, <laughs> it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't show up uh, like that. So, uh, you know, was it outgassing just pure invisible gases or was it not outgassing anything at all, mm. in which case it would be um, like an asteroid. It's a rocky thing, which doesn't outgas. However, uh, they've now analyzed all the, the, the what they did were able to measure with this object was a very precise measurements using the Hubble Space Telescope of its position in space and so they're measuring it as it going through and the solar system and taking account of the sun's gravity and the gravity of the planets and everything else that would be pulling on it you would expect then a rocky object to basically be only affected by gravity and if you take all that into account then you can predict its path and there should be no deviation from that that's we know about that for asteroids comets however don't do that because they're outgassing material they've got sort of this volatile material inside when they get heated up by the sun they start outgassing 
working. That's why we see tails and jets coming out. We saw that with uh, the ESA mission to the 67P comet. Uh, we could see it close up in that case. And so these are like little thruster jets, and they push the comets off their path that would be otherwise be followed if it's only gravity that was affecting them. So in other words, there is an active pushing of comets caused by outgassing. And what they've detected in this uh, Muamua is the fact that uh, it didn't follow the perfect path predicted purely by gravity. In other words, it was following a slightly different path, tiny amount, but measurable nevertheless. And so it shows that it was outgassing something. Mm. Um, and they've even, in, in the deepest images they have from the Hubble Space Telescope, there's the slightest ghost of material coming out. But we're talking about a few kilos, a few kilos of material, dusty material that was ejected. And quite a bit more gas might have come out of it, like carbon dioxide and things like that, that you can't see easily uh, in a telescope, or you can't see in a telescope, mm. but uh, the dust particles reflect sunlight, so you do see them in the vicinity. So there is a hint of that there. So, But... The fact that it's not following a path predicted by gravity alone tells us that something else, this extra push was going on, and it tells us that it was outgassing. So it does look like it's now been probably re on the basis of this science, unless it's somebody it was published in, a, in Nature, so it would be pretty, uh, pretty robust. Uh, it, uh, it's a very, care National very Enquirer, isn't it? <laughs> it's very carefully done, very carefully vetted. Okay. Um, so it does look like Muamua was actually a comet after all, um, albeit a weakly outgassing one. So that means it probably did most of its outgassing before it left its own solar system. And we, we have these objects too that uh, are basically, um, they look sort of kind of asteroidal, but they, they're still outgassing occasionally and they're weak, weakly outgassing materials in our solar system because they've been close to the sun many times. Oh. So they've gradually lost all their volatile material and they're not producing much more, but they're still producing it. A dried up old comet. Yeah, they sort of run out of puff. Right. Now, the artist's uh, uh, impression um, was taken from what they thought it was at the time, and that was that big, long shard thing. Now, yep. comet or no, would, are we, how sure are we, are we that it was a long shardy thing? Well, that's based on the sort of the fact that it was rotating or tumbling in a sort of fairly chaotic way. It right. wasn't just sort of like the Earth rotating on an axis. It was tumbling about a bunch of different axes, and it was really complicated. Um, so uh, the, the elongated shape is still you know, true based on the current okay. things. In but fact, you know, there's been suggestions that it could be anywhere between a 1 to 10 ratio and mm. diameter to length uh, and others as low as 1 to 6. So there's, I think there's still some uncertainty on the precise sort of details of the shape. But still I think, way longer than uh, it is Oh, it's definitely wide. elongated. And, un, and this is the other puzzle. It, there's nothing in our solar system we've found yet that looks like this. Is there any law against a comet being that shape? <clears throat> well, yeah, we, we, we see comets that are like two lobes stuck together, yeah. and I think they understand the way that happens. It's probably low-velocity collisions of two round things in the past, but uh, we don't have any strict parallel in our solar system of these something that's elongated. Um, could it have been produced by as a result of a collision? You had a bigger object that got uh, hit by a big rock at some point, uh, and it shattered the, the, the body of the thing, and some of the bits just ended up funny shape yeah. like that we don't know but it's odd and surprising indeed that uh, there isn't some strict parallel in our solar system 
And the the other final thing is really is that also that this amount of outgassing that although we say it's a tiny amount, we knew do or it fits within what we know so, uh, objects in our solar system outgas that amount too. Uh-huh. So it's not extraordinary. It's uh, it, it, it's uh, that's understandable in terms of what we know about our own comets. All right. Um, now the best test yet of general relativity on galactic scales. And ha ha, huzzah, ta-da, Einstein's right again. Yeah, it's always uh, good to see this. I mean, there's, uh, I mean, we general relativity theory, uh, as per Albert Einstein, is uh, what we, what is generally regarded as by far the best theory of gravity. But there are um, still. Um, possibilities of other sort of types of gravity, what, what are called modified Newtonian dynamics, which is um, a, a sort of variant of, of, um, of Newton's law of gravity. Um, and they, although every detailed test that's done so far sort of supports general relativity, um, there's no test yet that's been done that absolutely excludes the others. So there, and certainly at cosmological level, certainly within the solar system, uh, general relativity can can be worked out by satellites and things like that, and it, it's it's spot on. Mm. But the question is, is it still true on much bigger scale, distant scales? And that tends to be harder to do. So you know, by studying a a um, uh, a galaxy that's been lensed, um, a, a very distant galaxy has been lensed by another one, you can actually analyse the light and work out the total mass involved. Um, and uh, but you know, basically, the, you can analyse the star motions and all that sort of stuff and show that basically uh, those observations agree exactly with general relativity. Uh, they still don't actually exclude the other no. one, but. Um, you know, this, the, the, because there's lots of variants of these alternative gravity theories, many of which are trying to get rid of dark matter. Now, that's true. We don't, don't know what dark matter is. Most astronomers and scientists would say probably dark matter exists, but there's still, you can't, because it's never explicitly been detected, we only see it indirectly mm. or evidence of it. These other theories are uh, still in, in play because... You know, we don't know what dark matter is, and they sort of can reproduce those effects. But uh, they're always under stress, be with all the mo- and, and as experiments and observations get sharper and sharper and sharper, uh, the the room for these other theories is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. But it, this, although it strongly supports uh, general relativity and it's a simple explanation that it has. Um, and all the other stuff we've got from gravitational waves and combining neutron stars and, you know, just the huge multiplicity of other things that tell us that general relativity is, is probably is the correct description. Um, it hasn't actually pushed the others completely off the table yet, but the, 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 the space they've got, the rigor room they've got is getting smaller. All right, let's carry on with deep physics and a fifth force. The major forces that we can... Um, have been able to isolate, look at, and it's basically what everything works in the universe to, uh, what is it, gravity, strong nuclear, weak nuclear, and electromagnetism. That's right. Is that, that's, that's the four? Right. Yeah, that's that, those are the four forces that are certainly, everyone agrees on those. Yeah. Um, and in fact, electromagnetism used to be electricity and magnetism in the sort of back in the early part of the 19th century. Uh, James Maxwell take about then then yeah Maxwell showed that in fact they're simply different 
views of the same force. So, so the actual force is called electromagnetism. Now, a fifth? Haha, where's this been hiding? What? Well, the, you know, there's always this possibility that we, we can't say that... Uh, at the, all you can do is experiments and say, do, can you do experiments that uh, show that uh, there's um, uh, another force there or not? Uh, and the, the sort of the, 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 I guess, the canary in the coal mine is the presence of dark matter. I mean, we, we see the motions of galaxies and everything else and stuff on a cosmological scale that suggests that there's this stuff called dark matter there, which could be 25% of the mass of the universe. But it's not hard, to, it's very hard to um, see. And, and most physicists would be arguing that if it exists, it's some sort of particle. But try as they might, they've never found a dark matter particle yet. Right. It doesn't mean they have got to the end of the story, but it's mm. it's been... Furiatingly difficult. Uh, you so you see dark matter on a big scale, but you can't see it in the laboratory. So what the hell is it? Is it a particle? We don't know. But so there's these, um, and this comes back to this what we were talking about before with these modified theories. Mm. But um, yeah, so there's been uh, experiments been done with pulsars. So pulsars are sort of a super super dense object that's the result of a supernova explosion. Matter's crushed down so much that almost certainly if dark matter is playing a part in the universe, it'll be doing something inside a neutron star. Mm -hmm. uh, and this neutron star is in orbit with a, another a white dwarf star, and they've studied the motions of that. And they can measure these orbits extremely precisely with radio astronomy. The, it's unbelievable the precision that they can get and uh, time the, uh, the orbital motion of these things. So they're a wonderful probe, if you like, of fundamental physics. And... <clears throat> This one in particular was looking towards, it's between us and the middle of our galaxy, and it's thought that most of the dark matter in our galaxy is clumped somewhere near the middle of the galaxy. So if you want to see if there's an effect on dark matter on the behaviour of a neutron star, then start looking at one in that direction and make these precise measurements. And this has been done by radio astronomers on a particular object over a period of about 20 years. Or Good God. So, you know, they have exquisite measurements of the behaviour of this thing. And basically... Uh, what they say is they see no evidence for in, invoking a fifth force. In other words, basically they can explain what they're seeing in terms of the four forces we already have. What they're now looking for is pulsars that are much closer to the middle of the galaxy where there's a higher concentration of dark matter to see if pulsars still behave correctly or whether you can detect any slight departure from that expectation. And that would be indicating if, if they did that, then they might that would support the idea that there could be some fifth force of nature that hasn't been detected yet. But obviously, as, I, as you probably gathered, it's excruciatingly difficult right. to actually prove it. It's so it, it's, it's extremely weak. It has to be less than a sort of the order of 1% of mm. the strength of gravity. Which is really which is weak. Which is by far the weakest of the four forces. We think of gravity is strong, but in fact the nuclear forces are much stronger. You need a whole planet just to stick that's on right. the Earth. That's right. You need a heap of it to... <laughs> <laughs> that's right, to in order to sort of get any real effect. So, so gravity is extremely weak. At the moment, they can say that if there is a fifth force, it can't be more than about 1% of gravity, which okay. is extremely weak, uh, and you'll only see it on very big scales. Nice, so, they're looking. Yeah, well, it's great. I mean, hell, you know, there's Nobel Prizes buried in that. If you so. can sort of detect that, that's a short route to Stockholm. And let's bring it right back home to our solar system and Saturn's rings. It's always good to give a heads up 
when they're lovely to see because it's the most spectacular piece of um, uh, modern art, basically, yeah. in, in the solar system. It's beautiful. Art deco, really, isn't it? And it, when the rings are tilted and, and look really good from the Earth, get yourself a telescope. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I, I mean, Saturn, to me, is by far the... the the most interesting planet to look at. It's my favourite by far. And right now is almost the perfect time to be looking at Saturn. A, it's a long way south, so it's high in our sky, very high. Mm. Um, and uh, we're also close to Saturn at the present time. We go round an orbit around the sun, so every year we overtake Saturn on the inside, and we're overtaking Saturn about now. Um, and the rings are also tilted up at quite a high angle, so you get a beautiful view of the rings. Saturn looks a lot dimmer and it's a little less spectacular when the rings get closer to edge on. They look like it's sort of fairly narrow and you can't see much detail, but right now they're tilted up really high angle. So in a good telescope you can see the bands on Jupiter uh, on Saturn's uh, clouds, uh, just like uh, they're sort of weaker and not as prominent as those on Jupiter, but similar. And of course you can see the detail, you can see detail in the rings, uh, amateur uh, astro images uh, using small telescopes are doing wonderful stuff taking um, really amazingly high resolution images of, plan of the planets now using sort of uh, um, what's called lucky imaging with video cameras and they get spectacularly sharp views so that you know much better than professional observatories did uh, only probably a decade or so ago mm. so um, so definitely worthwhile if you can get yeah, visit a local observatory or if you've got a telescope Saturn would be the uh, primary thing to be looking at right now. And it may be surprising how many um, uh, places around the country have uh, an astronomical society. Yeah, most uh, most Not of the sort the of provincial centers. towns do. Yeah. Uh, they, I mean, New Zealand's got about 26 astronomical societies, part of uh, sort of all different places. There's uh, bigger ones in places like Auckland and Christchurch and Wellington and Dunedin, but yep. the, you know, there's other towns, uh, Tauranga, Napier, mm. New Plymouth, Whanganui. Uh, and um, they wouldn't mind if you emailed or rang up and said, I really want to see Saturn. Yeah, most of them have their, t their observatories or telescopes available on a sort of a weekly or even a monthly basis to visit. Um, and uh, so pick a nice night, find out your local one. You're probably in your own community, you'll find uh, you already know it. But definitely it's a reason to go along and have a look. Yeah. Grant Christie, thank you very much. And we'll talk again next week. Yeah, thanks, Ram. The Weekend. Variety. Wireless. Just a reminder, the associated links, photographs, etc. for our astronomy piece are available on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. And if you're there, uh, join us on the Facebook group. Why not? It's a fun little community. Okay, uh, new sport and weather coming at you at around about the speed of light.